Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today I interviewed Jeff Morris Jr. We had a really interesting conversation. Uh, when we recorded this conversation, Jeff just recently had gotten a job at Lambda School, uh, and it's really interesting to hear his perspective on the first few weeks, and now it's been a month or so, so I'm really interested to hear uh, about what's happened since then. I think you'll like this episode. If you do, please find us on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher by searching for Crazy Wisdom. Uh, and if you really like this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop III. My DMs are open. Uh, I'd love to hear from guests. Like I don't, I, I, Every once in a while, I'll hear from a guest that they this a show or an episode really impacted their life. Uh, and I had no idea that, that this person was listening to the episode or listening to the podcast. And it's, I made a video about this recently. It's as a, somebody who's creating content, it's very interesting to put something out there and have no idea who's going to find it. Because I think as we evolutionarily grew or matured in our evolutionary environments, when we were speaking, we knew exactly who was listening to uh, what we were saying. Uh, but then as civilization started to grow, that that disconnect between the person speaking and the person hearing or reading the message grew and grew and grew. And now it's even more so with the Internet. Um, so I'd really I'd love to hear from you if you have any input about how the show has changed your way of thinking or changed your life in any meaningful way. I'd really love to hear it or even negative. If I, I, I welcome all feedback. So. If you have anything to say, my DMs are open at Twitter, on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. Let me know what you th think. Have a great day. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Jeff Morris. He is the Director of Product and Growth at Lambda School. Uh, he's also the Managing Partner at Chapter One Ventures. Uh, really excited to have you on, Jeff. Welcome to the show. Stuart, excited to be here. Thank you. Yeah. So what are you most excited about today? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, no, I think, so as you mentioned, I, I just joined Lambda School two weeks ago and I feel like, um, you know, the first week, week and a half, you're just trying to like figure out what's going on. And um, I'm starting to identify a few, a few things within the company that I'm really excited to, to build and work on. So, um, so that's exciting. And then besides that, we, uh, I'm, I'm based in Los Angeles full time and, Today is just a beautiful day, so um, have the have the LA weather to thank for my good mood. So life and work, you're really excited about life and work. That's cool. Um, and so, I want to an interesting question came to mind when you were explaining joining Lambda for two weeks. What's it like joining? Because you guys are remote, right? Yeah, we're remote. So this is my first um, time ever being remote, and it's it's interesting, like. They have, I think the one thing about remote companies is, is you have to do a really great job of documenting every process. And so everything lives within Notion um, in terms of process. And that's really kind of how you figure out what, what's happening in the company. And then um, just in terms of, of like meetings and people talk about the future of work a lot. Uh, you're, you're always on video, obviously. And I'm finding meetings are a lot more efficient um, just because there's not a a ton of uh, kind of banter, um, which, you know, I, I think at some companies that's, that's fun, but, but everything seems to be a lot more efficient. So um, I was lucky I flew last week to Lehigh, Utah, which is 
where one of their headquarters is and, and really got to know people in person. And um, once you once you kind of establish that that relationship in person, now we kind of all feel like we we know each other and we're just uh, kind of friends talking on on video chat, which is pretty cool. And so that's an important part of their onboarding process is actually flying to a headquarters and meeting the people that you're going to be working with. I think it just so happened for me that like last week, a lot of people were going to Utah. So it's not a formal part of the process. One thing um, they did do pretty well is you have uh, every week you're randomly assigned with someone within the company to do kind of a, a, a digital coffee chat. Mm -hmm. And so um, there are these, these little checkpoints where you're trying to create um, kind of the serendipity of what you might see in real life and, and have that happen more digitally. But uh, yeah, it's, it's not a fully remote company. So they do have an office in San Francisco and, and Utah, which is, um, you know, you hear about like fully remote companies like um, GitLab and, and I think Zapier is, is another example. And um, yeah, there's, I think there's different levels of remote and the category is just being talked about a lot more right, right now, which is interesting. And I know you're sitting in San Francisco and um, you're probably hearing, hearing all about this too. Uh, yeah, definitely. And I, I actually interviewed the the CEO, um, uh, Sid of GitLab, um, and I and a few other people, Andreas Klinger, uh, and I've gone pretty heavily into remote work. And it's funny because the reason why I have experience with it isn't totally remote, although I've had many years of experience doing remote work with my first company. My co-founder was in Brazil, uh, and we started in 2012, so I've been doing it since then. But uh, uh, one of the most interesting aspects of my life over the past five years is changing from uh, in-person therapy and uh, coaching to uh, remote uh, therapy and coaching. Um, and that's been really interesting because I don't have to go anywhere. I don't have to do that 30 minutes going there, 30 minutes back, traffic, all that different stuff. I just hop on a call uh, and I'm finding the more I get used to it, the more effective it is. Uh, and it's really interesting. Have you ever done any like coaching or anything like that? On, I have, yeah. I've hmm. done coaching. I've gone to therapists at different points in my life. Um, and I've I actually, so while I was kind of deciding what I wanted to do next, I, I, I did a deep dive into the mental health space for about six months, um, kind of on nights and, and weekends and, and started to perform a lot of experiments with uh, different versions of teletherapy. And um, we can get, kind of go down that rabbit hole. But one of the things I I tested was um, you know, having like a, a more frequent relationship with a coach where, um, I was actually giving them access to a lot of, a lot of my health data mm. and a lot of the things that were happening in my life. So, um, the, the ex exact experiment I ran was I had a life coach basically when I woke up in the every, every morning, I had a text message from my life coach, um, kind of encouraging me for that day. And it wasn't pre-canned. It was very personalized. Uh, and so, yeah, I did, I did a lot of research in the space because of, um, I myself have, have gone to therapy at different points in my life and I feel like there's so much room for innovation. And, you know, one of the, the, the starting point for me was thinking about how going to a, a physical therapist just feels kind of outdated. Like it, it almost feels like you're going to a shopping mall in many, many ways. Mm -hmm. Um, and even the, you know, you, you walk into like an, office park or some high-rise building and there's like an old people magazine from a couple of years ago and you have to sit in a waiting room with with other people it's just um it's not it's not kind of a modern experience so i spent a lot of time thinking about teletherapy but also how you might innovate on the in-person experience to create um 
something that feels a little bit more in line with with uh, I don't know, like like imagine like a soul cycle for therapy or something, um, and and kind of went down went down that path. And that's the interesting thing is that the model that has been around since probably the 1950s, maybe even since Freud and Jung, uh, is that you go if you're doing it as part of your work, you know, you go for one hour a day. You don't really talk to the therapist outside of that. You just go for that one hour a week. You go there, they fix you, you know, you come back and, and that's how it works. And it's kind of like contained in this little one hour unit, which you have to go there and come back. Um, and, and, and I find that interesting because now I've been working with coaches and coaches are a little bit more kind of amorphous, which I actually like about that because there seems to be more opportunity for testing and innovation and figuring out like, well, what are some things that work that don't fit that model of like, I'm just going to go to a therapist and, and then never talk to them again outside of that one hour period, like and actually developing a relationship with them. But maybe there's problems with that. Maybe there's a re reason why therapists don't do that. Um, but uh, I'm definitely choosing to go the more untraditional route. And I love it because, you know, it's like I have a coach in Berlin, actually, who's doing helping me with business coaching. Um, and he is I just you know text him on whatsapp and send a voice message to him on whatsapp and it's asynchronous uh and that's the cool thing and I, well this, we could bring it back to lambda school is lambda school is there do they have a, a communi preferred communication style because when i uh, interviewed um sid from gitlab they said that by default they are asynchronous communication so most of the communication happens asynchronously because they're so spread out around the world and that's the only way they can do it because you can't organize medium meetups so what's lambda school philosophy on that yeah, I'm still kind of figuring it out. I think it's a combination of, of Slack and Zoom, um, some asynchronous chat, but, uh, you know, for the most part, we're all based in similar time zones. And uh, I'm sure as we scale globally, there will be more async. Uh, but it, it doesn't feel all that different from going to the office. You're just, you know, you're working from home. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, I would say for a fully remote company, um, those things those questions async versus sync um, become more important but right now it's actually feels kind of just like going to the office and so um one of the interesting things is i think there's so many people trying to build tools for remote work and uh, after doing this for two weeks i'm kind of satisfied with with the stack right now so the combination of of kind of notion plus zoom plus slack um it kind of works so i think you see a lot of people trying to to innovate in the space right now, and I'm I, I'm kind of questioning like how much of that is hype versus reality of what customers actually actually need. Thank you so much for bringing that up because that is exactly my philosophy, which is essentially that all these tools are kind of silly, and and there's already enough people building it, and they've been building it for a while. Uh, the real the what I'm what I'm placing my money on, what I'm placing my time on, is essentially providing training and online education the kind of human element uh and uh, taking that from a traditional office environment and trying to figure out how to uh, adapt that to a remote office um and so i'm talking with some pretty big companies about uh, who are remote about about uh, different ways that i can bring um, education to the actual uh companies themselves uh, yeah I, I like that approach i think um you know, I think a lot of the investors who are who are investing in the category probably haven't actually done remote work before. Uh, and I, I do think there's there's like different levels of remote work where there's a lot of like pro pro level remote work tools that that are being built that maybe have smaller audiences. But um, I don't know if those will have mass appeal. I think the biggest YC company 
this batch was tandem who's doing remote work and it's, it's kind of like being um you've probably seen it but you can you can see what files people are working on you can really easily jump into pair programming sessions um a lot of it's just like like really easily hopping into different files with people um you know loom looms another example where it's async videos but there's, there's a lot of interesting tools being built right now I, I think i don't know if this category requires um billions and billions and billions of dollars of investment though that's really interesting and you've done some investing too are you still doing investing i'm still doing investing so i have chapter one which is my fund um raise that fund uh throughout the past year and and um have some really exciting lps and and have done five investments in that fund previously investing about 60 plus early stage companies and um you know i'm about probably like three years in to, to really call myself an investor and before that was doing just more kind of friends and family investments when i saw an interesting company and what is the most impactful thing that you've learned about investing over the past two years that's a great question. I think, um, <clears throat> I think, I think, uh, like for me personally, it's it's just really not falling into hype cycles and being very disciplined. Um, you know, like one of the one of my, I'll call him a mentor is is Mike Maples at this point, who's uh, really taught me the the importance of paying attention to price, which seems intuitive, but right now you're seeing you know, seed deals that are raising at like 18 posts pre-product. And so a lot of it's just, just like the, um, not the need to, to not get caught up in the rat race. I think when I was younger, I was very, um, I would say, I would say I fell into kind of like the trap of, of letting other people do some of my investment work, work for me, where it's, you know, you see some fancy firm attached to a deal and, and you, you say, you know, why not? I'll do that too. And now it's it's kind of just being my own my own thinker, uh, making my own decisions, I should say, and 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 kind of having my own perspective on on the world. Where if I see a brand name firm invest in a company, maybe maybe they see something I don't see, but I have to make that that judgment for myself. That's uh, really interesting, and it goes into something I've been reading a lot about in the book Behave by Robert Sapolsky, where he talks about our frontal cortex isn't fully developed until we're 25 years old. Um, and our frontal cortex is, there's two parts of the frontal cortex that are really important to develop. One of them is what's called the VMPF, PFC, ventral medial prefrontal cortex, and the other one's the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. And both of those don't really come fully online until we're 25. And so before that, we're really, really um, kind of, paying attention to a lot of signals uh, that are social in nature. And it's harder to kind of zoom out and look at what is the actual like truth of this situation as, as opposed to what is the truth uh, mediated through social relationships. Um, and uh, because social relationships and social thought and kind of collective understanding is that's what, you know, money is, is an example of that. It's money doesn't exist in nature. Um, although we are part of nature, so money does exist in nature in that kind of sense, but it's, it's, it's slightly different. And so for me, uh, especially after the age of 25, now reflecting, once I've understood that now reflecting on that and seeing how much, um, I've grown and how now it's much easier for me to kind of like separate myself and, and see a message. Cause before I would like take people for what they, what they said and, and, 
kind of listen to what they say and then be like, oh, that, that must be the truth because they're saying it. And I'm like, wait, that, that might not be the truth. They could just be saying that. There's nothing, there, there's nothing inherently truthful about what people say. I mean, you can kind of get a, get a sense of it as well. But in this, I'm trying to tie this into what you said about investing because it seems like a similar thing of that, you know, it's like fear or greed. People are either afraid to not get into that deal or they're greedy. So they want to get in that deal. Um, and that can really like make this hype cycle really, really, uh, difficult to see for what it is, is the hype cycle. Um, do you have anything to add on that? Yeah, I think like what I've started to do is really ask myself, um, to try and figure out each investor's motivation. So if you look at a cap mm -hmm. table and you see a firm invested, um, maybe they are doing it out of fear because they feel if they don't get that deal and it ends up being one of the 10 deals every year that ends up being a, a billion dollar company, then um, then their LPs will be upset. And so uh, th there is a fear game. Also another, like another thing that is really interesting to think about are, are just like the psychology of, of bridge rounds. And so, um, you know, is an investor, you know, falling on their investment because they believe in the company or because they want to save the entrepreneur um, and, and not look like uh, they're abandoning the company. So there's all these, these situations where um, just because someone invests in a round, it doesn't mean their, their decision framework is, is what, what you should be using as your framework if you're an angel. And especially if you just think of different fund sizes, like, um, my fund is is a three million dollar fund, and um, for me to return my fund looks a lot different than uh, Sequoia or Benchmark trying to, to return their fund. So I have to have a much different strategy. And so um, a lot of the things that Mike has has taught me is um, just being very clear about your fund fund strategy from a, a quantitative level. So um, figure out your your model that works for you and. Um, that's why when I say like a deal, like tandem, like <laughs> great company, interesting company, but, um, perhaps investing at a, a $40 million valuation, um, in a seed deal doesn't make sense for a seed fund. Um, and so, yeah, you just have to ask yourself, um, all these questions and try and figure out the game you're playing as an investor, because, um, a lot of it depends on your fund size. And, and, um, that's what I think a lot of, a lot of first time funds don't really pay attention to that they they try and be what what you refer to as access funds which is just showing you can get access to the best deals um but getting access to the best deals might not be the best way to make money <laughs> that's really interesting um the thing i want to clarify for my audience who doesn't know that much about investing uh, a bridge round uh, what jeff was talking about is essentially when a company raises money um at a certain valuation and then uh uh, maybe before they're ready, and please correct me if I'm wrong on this, Jeff, maybe before they, they're ready, they need to raise more money. And so the original investor who originally invested before they needed more money um, then follows on that round um, uh, and helps them uh, raise more money. Is that an accurate way to pronounce, say that? That is, yeah. Bridge rounds generally happen when, um, say, you know, a lot of times they happen like a Series A. So you, you raise a Series A and there's a big uh, jump required to, to get a series B, um, in terms of growth, revenue, et cetera. And so you're commonly your existing in investors will say, Hey, we'll, we'll put in more money. We know you're not B, but this is, um, a life towards that B. And so there's, there's always a debate 
whether um, whether you should purchase bridges and different people have different strategies there. But um, yeah, I was using that as one example where just because an investor is, is you know putting money in a deal, that doesn't necessarily mean the company is is you know doing really well at that moment in time. That's a really important insight. Um, I'd love to go back to Lambda and understanding more about what your role there is and why you joined it. Sure. Yeah. So <clears throat> I guess taking a step back. Uh, so I, I did my MBA at UCLA on the weekends and starting in 2017 and I'm done. But as I was in school um, on the weekends, I, I had, had to do a thesis. And so um, at the time I was going through grad school is my second round of grad school. And I was thinking to myself, uh, what, to do a thesis on future of education and then um, kind of narrowed, narrowed down the of companies to Lambda School and ended up doing it on Lambda School. So I spent six months um, working with the team on outcomes. And so if you think of Lambda School and for your listeners who, who don't know what Lambda School is, it's, it's basically an online uh, education platform where uh, you can join, you can learn web development, data science, UX, UI, um, iOS education and you pay zero dollars until you get a high paying job. And so, uh, you know, th there's a lot of social reasons why, why I'm interested in the company. Um, student debt is, is one of the, I think the biggest crises in America right now. And so I was really interested in that. Um, uh, the income sharing agreement, which I mentioned, you pay zero dollars. is just a really interesting new financial instrument that it's actually been around for a while, but um, it's becoming more accepted. And so there are all these interesting things, but, but more so I kind of thought about what I want to do with the next four plus years of my life. And um, I had, I had gone to a full-time boot camp at general assembly in 2014 myself and just saw what it did for me in my life, uh, learning how to program. And I'll, I'll preface that by saying I'm a, actually a, a pretty poor <laughs> programmer. I figured that out pretty quickly. Like my brain is much, much more wired for product than it is web development or engineering, but it gave me a lot more confidence in, in the workplace. And so I think if you look at America and you look at the uh, skill requirements for kind of the future of labor and the future of employment, um, you look at reskilling, upskilling, like there's so many uh, things that are happening in, this, in the world and, and, uh, you know, automation, like we could get on the list of buzzwords, but uh, Lambda schools kind of uh, playing a part in each of these areas. And, and for, for what I think is, is probably going to be the, the future of education. There will be, I think there will be many different uh, companies in the space. Lambda school right is, is appears to be uh, kind of have, have some, some pretty good win in its sales. This is so interesting about innovation and technology and uh, cycles because five years ago, six years ago, um, I, you know, I was in San Francisco for all the, uh, you know, big schools like General Assembly, Hack Reactor, um, uh, Dev Bootcamp, and there's so much hype around them, and then none of them are around today in their full glory. Um, I mean, General Assembly is still around, I think, but I'm not sure how yeah. well they're doing. Um, and then, and, and then I actually did an online one. I did, I did one of the first online ones, which was called Code Union at the time. Um, and that was really cool. I really enjoyed that. Uh, they didn't, they didn't end up uh, going much longer. Um, uh, but, the, and then, and then 
out of nowhere, when all of these other ones are collapsing here, Lambda comes with this, uh, you know, um, income sharing agreement mixed with an online lower cost of no cost of, uh, of, of infrastructure of, of actual like housing people and doing this stuff. Cause that's, I think, I think that's what led to the demise of that bootcamp and, and hack reactor was the fixed cost of actually, um, the schools themselves. What do you think on that? Yeah, th there's been so many attempts at online education. Yeah, I mentioned I did General Assembly, which was a physical school, and they did have an online component they layered on later. Um, Hack Reactor was in person as well. I think what Lambda School has, has done so well is, um, A, like the income trainer agreement was, I think, a very nice uh, kind of program, but they started from first principles to think about what would an online school look like if you were to build it from scratch and uh, really focus all of their energy. And, and I think internally, like our one of our core principles is just being student obsessed. And so you see this in different categories, but uh, really, really focusing on, on the students. And um, I think that's like, there's a lot of, of, of reasons why Lemon School is doing well, but it comes down to the fact that they started from scratch as an online school. We thought about um, what are the components you need to build a successful curriculum uh, if you were doing this online. And I think mm. one, of, one of the most exciting things from, from my perspective is, and I'll give you a tangible example is, I was, a, we did a, a kind of a online showcase of, of projects last week and I was a shark um, in mm. the showcase. Mm. And so I was in a, effectively like a hackathon with 350 people on zoom hmm. from all over the the world and that was kind of the aha moment for me where i was like okay this is uh the future of education in terms of network effects like another judge was in salt lake city a student was pitching me from barcelona and we were all online um at the same time talking about projects that have been built and then i kind of zoomed out and and thought about my MBA experience at UCLA, and I love UCLA, but there's not a lot of uh, geographical geographical diversity there, and there's no uh, real network effects. I think 80% of the students in my class were from California, and so I think Lambda School becomes exciting, and, and I've kind of said um, amongst friends that I think it starts to look like a Y Combinator at some point in terms of network effects, where you have hiring managers who are, uh, who are former graduates, and and so you see uh, advocates within companies who are really pushing for lending to uh, be a, a hiring source. And um, you'll see Lambda School grads starting companies together. And so I think, I, I, you know, the company, I think people forget like the company is only two, two plus years old. And so, you know, if you think about the number of cohorts that have graduated and you multiply that by a couple of years from now, uh, the school will look a lot different. Mm. And I guess what you're bringing to mind is that it also is uh, dependent on this other technological innovation or technology innovation, uh, which didn't exist previously, because I imagine that it would be very, very difficult to do Lambda School if Zoom didn't exist, Zoom video didn't exist. Uh, and, you know, trying it on Skype, I just don't think I could see <laughs> Lambda School happening on Skype or Google Hangouts for that matter. And, and actually, that's I did I did the code union in the online school on uh, on Google Hangouts. Um, and it worked they were fine, but but something about the Zoom product itself, and and I believe there is a, a, a an actual architecture, data architecture. I don't, I'm not technical enough to really understand what it is that Zoom did, but I believe there is something. I talked to Bill Tai about it, um, who was an early investor of it, 
Um, and he, he said something which I now forget, which is that so there's some sort of technological architecture that Zoom perfected that allows them to do this high quality video at scale. And like we see in a lot of other things, that is the puzzle piece that seems to have allowed Lambda School to do what it does too. Would you agree? I agree with that. Yeah, the, uh, obviously the, the video quality is entirely different than it was four or five years ago. And um, yeah, I think there's so many advantages to an online environment versus a physical environment. And you talked about it with your coach earlier, like uh, the save time on commuting and kind of the process of getting from uh, your door to a classroom is just very time consuming. And that time could be better spent learning. Um, another, another piece that's very interesting is if you think about when you're, when you're in a online course versus in person, like when your instructor in class tells you to split off into groups, um, and I just did this with my, my MBA program, we would do the whole thing where you, you assign each, you, you kind of do like the one, two, three, four thing where you all pick a number and you have to listen to 80 different people uh, self-assign themselves numbers, which are their, their groups. And then they have, and then you have to go split off and find like a quiet space to meet with your group. That can all happen uh, uh, instantaneously and, and immediately online where uh, if you, if you want to split off into groups to do group projects, you, uh, you can do that very easily and, and through software. Um, so yeah, I think people talk a lot about online education as if it's like a secondary learning method or, or it's, mm. it's kind of worse than, than in person. And, uh, you know, I, I think we've been doing this long enough where you could say there are very distinct advantages to online learning. And this fits with my recent experience of, of you know, people, when I tell people that I do most of my, my um, emotional and therapeutic work and coaching work online, they say, but you're missing something. You're, you're missing that intimacy. And um, I would say that as long as you've adapted to it, and that's the cool thing about human beings is we adapt to the, to the environment. As, as soon as you've adapted to it, you, that, that, that component that people say is missing and becomes very, very small in comparison to um, the convenience aspect, the, and also the emotional thing for me, I, it was funny because I'm now spending most of my time on remote and doing most of my interviews with remote with people from all over the world. I, you know, this week I've talked to somebody in Malawi. I talked to somebody in, um, in Washington DC who does investing in Brazil. I talked to somebody who's in Argentina. Like I, um, like I'm, I'm doing something that actually was possible with, with phone for a long time, but, uh, but is opening up with these technology thing. And I was noticing that, um, and then I went to a coffee shop meet, meeting today uh, and I was noticing all the noise and I guess I'm somewhat introverted and my senses are pretty uh, uh, attuned to lots of noise and other things like that. And here I am, you know, I'm in my room, room right now and I feel really comfortable with that and I'm having a conversation with you um, and you're kind of like a disembodied voice because we don't have the, the video on. Um, uh, but actually really I enjoy this cause I'm like, I'm comfortable, you're comfortable, you're in your room. Um, and it, it just, it just seems right. And maybe that's like a personality thing of like, I'm maybe more introverted, more, more sensitive to, to noise pollution. Um, and it's funny cause right now I have, I have the blue, uh, the blue angels jets that are right over San Francisco cause it's fleet week this week. So they're making noise. So I'm muting, my, <laughs> I'm muting myself every, uh, every time you're talking so that the, the noise doesn't come in, but. If anybody hears that, that's that's what's happening right now. So uh, it's just it's like I find it more comfortable uh, this way. And then 
you know, to really get my social, social life, I can go out, you know, dance classes at night or improv or, you know, meet friends and stuff like that. But I, I find it, I can concentrate so much better with this setup that now seems to be becoming more and more likely for a lot of different companies. Yeah. I think two things to that one. Um, and I talked to a therapist recently about this uh, and we debated it, whether, whether you need like the first meeting to be in person. And so um, there's a lot of mental health startups right now. There's a lot of teletherapy startups and um, some of them believe you do need that, that first interaction to be in person. And then you can kind of go off and do the remote interactions with that built in trust. Um, The second piece on your point that I was going to talk about is just, so after doing remote work for two weeks, I find that my uh, output is a lot greater than going to the office. And, um, part of it is just like, I, yeah, you don't have the distractions, but I also find myself working at um, different hours. So I, I'm, I'm waking up at the same time and, um, but maybe I go, um, you know, I go work out for a period of time and there's not like your, your coworkers aren't looking at you asking why you're going to the gym in the, in the middle of the day. <laughs> um, and then I'm, and then I'm, I'm working much later because it's just like, there's not this like, mental separation between work versus home. Um, and I'm actually a lot more productive and happy at the moment. So I don't know, I don't know if I'll feel that way, um, you know, in two months, but, but for me personally, working remotely has been uh, really advantageous to my output. And that's an interesting nuance because for a lot of people that might sound horrifying uh, to, to have that separation between work and play, uh, work and life, work and home uh, kind of dissolving. For myself, I, 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 I agree with that. I, I, I'm, I'm happier because I find what I do to be very, very fulfilling. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I guess that, that matters. So for some people who, who view work as a way to make money so that they can live, uh, that's probably pretty scary. But for people who, who find fulfillment out of their work, I think, um, I think that's pretty, uh, it's, it seems to be a benefit. Yeah. To, to your point, like, I don't view work as being, um, like, I, I love what I do and, and like I'm ha- I'm very happy uh, sitting in and helping build companies. So it's not, it's not like this daunting thing to have to have to sit at my computer and do work. Um, and so yeah, I'm very happy when I, I have a, a working night that goes to 10 o'clock. Um, that's not every night, but I, I find a lot of fulfillment and joy out of, out of working. <laughs> The one problem I'm facing is that I do think the blue light or not the blue light, the strain on the eyes of the computer is an issue. Uh, and I wish there was a technology solution for that. Uh, uh, cause I, I, I think that is an actual issue that we might be facing later on in life, like 10 to 20 years down the road, uh, spending so much time in front of the computer. That's why, like, that's what I really like doing these podcasts because I'm not looking at the screen all the time. I'm just, I'm able to have this conversation just, you know, pointing my, my mouth towards the microphone. Um, and, uh, and then also I like doing massage and body work and other things. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's an interest. I think the, the, the screen and eye strain thing might be an issue for us as we grow up. Yeah. I tried buying um, these like infrared glasses from Amazon. They're like $25 and, but they just look so goofy that I can't take myself seriously wearing them even when I'm by myself. Uh, but yeah, I, I think like last, last night I actually said to my wife, it was, about eleven thirty, and I think I stopped working around ten thirty. I, I kind of said, like, I'm having trouble sleeping because 
I was just staring at my screen for four hours. So I, I totally get that. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's different, uh, apps you can, you can buy different like night mode apps, but, um, totally agree. Like, like you need, you need wind down time at night too. And so, yeah, I'll, I'll figure that piece out. Uh, can you have a conversation about the the exp- global expansion of uh, Lambda School and how that's going and what that looks like? Yeah, so I know um, I know broadly like there was a program that that launched in Nigeria which um, showed a lot of demand on both the student and, and employer side. Um, I pr- I actually I actually am not familiar familiar enough yet with with the expansion plans, um, and so TBD. But I think. You know, we are seeing a lot of demand outside of the U.S. I think um, the the piece to to figure out is is just the income sharing agreements in different countries. Mm. But there there is great demand outside the U.S. And um, I happen to think, and I during my thesis, I did a lot of interviews with with international companies, and um, I found that there was a lot more acceptance to um, call it non traditional backgrounds for. Um, software engineers and, and different skilled workers. And, you know, if you're one of the companies was uh, a neo bank in Barcelona called N26 mm. and they just opened an office in Barcelona and they were looking to hire, I think 30 to 40 software developers. Mm. And, you know, if you're just, if you're setting up shop in Barcelona, um, they do have a, a, a technical community and, and a good software community, but um, you don't have like this, this, density of of engineering talent and so you have to be a little bit more creative with how you hire people and then um, another piece of that is just when you're not in in california or new york or wherever um, and you're you're somewhere outside the u.s you probably care a little bit less about um the stanford degree or the you know the harvard degree there's just there seems to be a little bit more acceptance of 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 non-linear career paths um, internationally, which I found to be interesting. I think it probably has something, I've spent a lot of time, I lived in Thailand and I lived in Brazil and I lived in um, uh, uh, Turkey, uh, Colombia and Mexico. And uh, I, I think it has a lot to do with the kind of global presence of the United States as well, because Lambda School is a, uh, a company from the United States that, and they, most of their stuff is in English. They have a certain kind of presence because I do find that in, in, in Brazil and Thailand and all these different countries, they had the same system that we do and not the same system, but they had a similar system in the, in the way that in, within their own country, they look at these credentials. I'm not sure if it works for Spain because you mentioned Spain. So I'm not, I'm not sure if, the, if it does work the same way there. I, 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 I believe that probably within the country of Spain, they'd probably look, uh, look towards their degrees, but, there's this whole kind of uh, differential that happens, particularly in Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley has this thing, this this thing too, as well, because the rest of the world has basically been taken over by Google and Facebook and all these different countries within the space of such a short period of time. So I think a lot of people in a lot of different countries are like, oh, Silicon Valley, we should pay attention to that. That that that's that probably <laughs> means something. Um, so. And now Silicon Valley doesn't even mean necessarily Silicon Valley. It's, you know, it's like they got an office in Lehigh, Utah, you know, I mean, but they, you know, Austin spent a lot of time here. So he had to come here in order to do it. So interesting that the the Silicon Valley is, I was thinking about it today. I've been, I've been uh, watching some uh, Jordan Peterson uh, maps of meaning uh, his class that he gave at university of Toronto. uh, And he talks a lot about myth and it's kind of this Joseph Campbell, Carl Jung type of thing. Um, and Silicon Valley has this myth ethos 
where it's like a, a, a founder will go off and essentially create this thing out of nothing and everybody's going to give them shit. Everybody's going to, you know, not believe them. Everybody's <laughs> going to you know do all these things. And then they're going to emerge victoriously from, from the, from the ashes of, of, of this uh, total social denigration. And uh, it's so interesting because it's such a, it's such, it's got all these really deep historical archetypes that, that are behind it. And now the rest of the world, and this is what I love, you know, investigating on the show. I, I, the rest of the world now has these content. So I, I started a company uh, in, uh, in actually Brazil. I teamed up with a Brazilian guy when I was lived there. I met, I met him down there. Um, and this was the same time that 500 startups had just recently gotten to uh, gotten to Rio de Janeiro and, uh, and all over the world and was like promoting in English. If you read English in any of these different countries, you had access to all this interesting content about how to build a company the way you do it in Silicon Valley at this, you know, a few years after you, after Google and Facebook had, had taken over the world. And, uh, and it was just so interesting to see. And, and now I'm, I'm, I'm chronicling that with my show. I'm going to go, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm talking to people all over the world and do these different ecosystems. And, and I think, I think it's just about to happen. Um, and, uh, uh, and I'm really excited about that. Uh, and I forget my original point, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think on the Silicon Valley, Valley thing, like I've, I've heard some interesting frameworks for like what Silicon Valley is at this point. Uh. Um, one of them was a, a great comparison to college where, um, you graduate, you're 22 and you do your four years in Silicon Valley and then you're free to go wherever you want because you've built that network and, um, you know, being in Silicon Valley is effectively its own credential um, where you can now say, yeah, I worked in, in San Francisco for X company and now I'm uh, happy to, to relocate to Austin, Texas or wherever else you want to go. Mm. And then the, the, other, the other kind of, um, it was more like a, a kind of team building framework was um, I invested in this company called Turing.com and, and uh, their their basic thesis is that uh, you, you, you still do need your executive team to be in, in Silicon Valley for a period of time, or it's very helpful, I should say. And then, but for everybody else, um, like, do you need your, you know, your 30th software engineer to be mm. sitting in a, a extremely expensive office mm -hmm. on Market Street? Or is it actually more, um, and especially if you, if you look at earlier stage companies, if you're hiring multiple engineers on call it like a $2 million seed round, um, it's actually financially irresponsible to hire everybody in, in Silicon Valley because that's just such a, a large cost, especially when you're, you're pre product market fit. And so, yeah, there's, I think it just, it's interesting to see the conversation happening now. And um, I think it comes at a time where there's just a lot of kind of angst in San Francisco, in San Francisco, there's a lot of uh, social questions about, you know, things happening in San Francisco, whether it's, uh, you know, housing control or, um, you know, just the, the quality of life in the city and people are really questioning whether you, uh, you need to be in, in San Francisco to build a company, which I think from a, a opportunity perspective is great because you have people all around the world who are, you know, gaining more confidence that they can build a company wherever, mm -hmm. wherever they want. That's a really good point. And I would love to ask you uh, in case in case you want to go more personal because I I grew up in Redwood City and I grew up in in technology. Did were your parents in technology as well? They weren't. I grew up um, close to you in in Atherton, California. And, um, my family was in real estate. My grandfather started uh, a well-known department store called Mervyn's, um, and 
yeah, I, I really had zero entry point into technology and, um, you know, found my first job on Twitter and had to move to Kansas City to just break into tech. Um, Wait. So. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> Wait, you, you, you've, you found the job on Twitter, you meaning you, you, you connected with somebody on Twitter and then moved to Kansas City for the job? Yeah, yeah, I was, I was coming. So I, maybe you could draw a lambda comparison, but mm. I came out of school with um, a non-technical background. I studied liberal arts and um, was trying to figure out how to get into tech. And so um, I was having at the time a tough, a really hard time finding a job. And there was one company called Zarly, which was um, a well-known company in called 2011. And um, their, one of their founders tweeted that they were looking for basically their first marketing hire, which just meant they were kind of looking for somebody to do a bit of everything. And um, I responded with, so their model was, was you could request anything you want for a certain price. And so I basically said, um, uh, you know, I, I put a request to work for them and I offered to awesome. pay them for the opportunity to work for them for wow. two months. <laughs> and so they, they didn't take my money, but they thought it was kind of creative. And um, <laughs> they said I could have the job if I moved to Kansas City within 24 hours. And so <laughs> I, and I think all this was like some, some weird setup test. I, I don't know. Uh, but I ended up booking a flight to Kansas City and, um, I remember when I landed, um, the cab driver asked me if I was going to Kansas City, Kansas or Kansas City, Missouri. And I, at the time, didn't even know, like, I didn't even know, like, Kansas City was in multiple states. So They're right next to each other, though, right? Wait, and which one did you have to go to? I went to Kansas City, Missouri. We, we were right on the border, though, so you could literally, you could say to your coworkers, like, hey, do you want to go eat lunch in Kansas today? And you could walk to Kansas or, or take a short drive to Kansas. Um, but yeah, just I, I had zero idea where I was going. I was I was just so uh, desperate to get into to tech to technology, and I knew if I could just get my first break, that I was going to be able to build a career. But it's always like like everything in life is always about one person giving you a chance, and and once you and then making sure when you get that chance that you actually you know bust your ass and do a really good job. And so I did I did get my chance, and I ended up doing a good job, and uh, luckily things worked out. Well, this brings up to a couple of different ways we could go, because uh, I want to go. I'd love to go back to the question of of uh, growing up in Silicon Valley, even if your your family wasn't into technology, being just surrounded by it. But then you just mentioned something really interesting about the chance. Yeah, the one person getting a chance, giving you a chance, and that doesn't really show up on statistics. Maybe it would. Maybe if somebody studied, I would. I would love it if if you're listening and and you know about people who have actually studied this question. Uh, but of that one chance that takes somebody takes on you and, it, and if you look at it from the statistics standpoint it's like that doesn't make any sense because it's just just like you have to find that one person who's willing to give you a chance and opportunity um which one more interests you to investigate um i i think i think the chance thing is interesting i think another thing that is just really interesting is just the luck involved with mm -hmm. with life but more you know in tech especially so um, like a really tangible example for me is I, when I was looking for a job, was uh, renting a, a desk at Rocket Space, which is used to be, I think they probably still are, uh, is kind of like a WeWork in, in San Francisco before WeWork. And I was sitting next to Uber, who was at the desk next, next to me, and Uber had 10 employees at the time. And I, um, I created a 
eight-page PowerPoint deck about how, how they might expand into Los Angeles, and I applied for the job, and um, I didn't get the job. But then if you uh, – and I know people who ended up being in 75 or 100 or whatever it might be in, but you can imagine, like, what if you got that break in your life? Mm -hmm. um, I ended up, like, getting those breaks, but I think so much of life is, like, these kind of micro – decisions or, or small moments that that like i'll give you an example for lambda school like i might not be working at lambda school if i didn't uh send a, put out a tweet uh saying i was looking for a company to do my thesis project on mm. and ha and if that person had not seen the tweet and responded to me and we had not uh done that like i'd probably be at a different company or somewhere else in life and so there's just so much randomness to to everything that happens in our lives and I think a lot of people try to take credit for that luck um, where, you know, success is especially like early stage investing. If you look at that, you know, like half, half the companies you invest in, you invest in, you are just investing in a person um, or maybe more than that. And you really have no idea how things might work. And then, um, you know, a company pivots a couple of times and ends up, succeeding and all of a sudden the the seed investors were the smartest people in the room mm -hmm. um so yeah I, I i find a lot of people take take too much credit for what was serendipity and luck um but maybe 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 there is skill to kind of putting yourself in the right place at the right time too yeah that's what i was going to ask is how much of it is dependent on being in the room at the right time yeah i think that's a big thing in recognizing like recognizing uh, something before it becomes really big, like having, I think a lot of the best investors I know uh, just are really big nerds about some really small niche subject or um, like some sub community on Reddit that ends up being a larger thing in the world one day. Mm. And so, yeah, I think for me, it always comes down to like actually having um, an authentic point of view or sorry an authentic interest in what you're investing in and so um, I was talking to someone who invested in Bitcoin in like 2011 and he was someone who was um, like hosting kind of underground Bitcoin dinners in San Francisco uh, and people thought they were they were kind of the biggest nerds in in the room <laughs> um, but that that wasn't luck like that was immersing yourself in some subculture that appears to be um, kind of this small little node in, in the world that ends up being a lot bigger. Okay. I'd love to have a conversation about that. Cause that, so you studied global art, right? I, I studied film and English. Um, okay. so yeah, maybe, maybe there's some global, global art in there, but yeah, yeah. I studied film and English. So in film it's, it's relevant for film as well. It's, it's this, this, these things that we end up spending our time doing that have, we don't really know where it's going. So for, for example, for me, it's like, I, I've become gone down this rabbit hole that I, you know, like if you had told me 10 years ago that I would be spending a couple hours a day thinking about how the body works and trying to understand what all the cells are doing and all these different stuffs. And like, why the hell am I not doing it in medical school? Cause well, it's, cause it's all online and it's all known. Um, and, and it's all like factual. We actually have a lot of facts. I mean, there's a lot of things we don't know about the human body, but, but it's like this, I, I don't know why I'm, why I'm obsessed with this thing. Um, and I don't, I don't think many people really know why, why it is that they are obsessed with the things they're doing. 
and you know there's this there's this kind of this uh, the muse do you i don't actually know don't know what a muse is but i've heard people talk about it do you know what a muse is do you know like the official description of it isn't it just like a source of inspiration so um traditionally it's like someone in your life or uh, i think it's even from as far back as the bible but someone who inspires creativity mm, and it's an actual person um it, it traditionally is a person but yeah so um or it could be maybe it could be like a an object or um a hobby or category but yeah traditionally it's a person mm. And do you know why you do the things you're, or do you, do you know why you have the interests that you do? Um, I think, I think it always comes down to like G coding things that have happened in my life. So um, for example, we talked about mental health earlier. I spent, like I said, I spent about six months um, over the past year digging into the space. And I think it's because I had gone to therapy when I was younger and I, I went, I kind of went just under the assumption that, that, I think when you're young, you, you accept things to be um, kind of as they are. Mm -hmm. And, and I remember when I was younger, like I, I went to therapy, and I was like, this is a therapy office. Like this must be the, um, the optimal version of, of whatever this, this experience is. But as I've gotten older, I've, I've just started to kind of question um, things from my past and, and ask myself, um, you know, if there are different versions or, optimizations you can make to things that that you've gone through and so uh similar to, to lambda school I, I mentioned i've done two two graduate degrees i did undergrad i did coding boot camp and now i'm kind of reflecting on those experiences and asking myself um what was the value of that and how could things have been better and so yeah a lot of what interests me just are things i've experienced in my past and um things i i I'm starting to question, I guess. Mm -hmm. What's the biggest thing you're questioning right now? Um, I think, I think for me, obviously it's the future of education is a big, a yeah. big thing. Um, you know, I think, I think another thing that I'm constantly questioning is just like, how can I, um, be happier in life? And so, uh, you know, I'm like, like right now I'm in this kind of habit of, of kind of, it's not journaling, but I'm, I'm, I'm each night kind of recording, um, different things about my day and I have them split into categories that um, and the categories I'll read them right now because I'm just starting this but um, it's like lambda family fitness sleep mental diet and every day I kind of uh, give myself scores for each category so I'm, I'm just kind of uh, like I guess I guess I've always been interested in kind of self-improvement but um, taking a more quantitative approach to to that um i've tried different apps but really uh i found that actually writing these things out is is very helpful mm, that's really cool and just on the education thing i, I think you you and maybe my listeners would find it really interesting uh, uh i was talking to uh yeah investment partner omidyar network i think it was yesterday and um they invested in this company called educa and it's uh, a e d u k a um, and you know, he, you know, like Lambda school, that is, you know, I assume is everybody on Lambda school on their computer when they sign in to do it? Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's all like computer required. And, yep. um, we do, we do have programs where you, you can get loaner computers, but yeah, you need to have a computer. And so thinking and applying this. So, and, and, and so that's the way in the United States it works. And that's, that's, I'm not, I'm not saying anything about that, but I'm saying, um, that in, uh, like places like Brazil or places like Africa, uh, 
for online education, most of the online education is going to happen on mobile and that can't happen for development In development. You need a computer in order to develop as far as I'm aware. Uh, but for online education for other things in this company, Educa, what they do is they provide online education through the mobile phone in, in a lot of developing countries there's, or middle income countries, there are these shacks, um, that sell things all the time and all these like survival businesses that are like restaurants and all these different things. Uh, and they're actually del delivering video education through the mobile phone to these uh, to these places to teach them how to do their business better and turn from just kind of subsistence level businesses to actually like growth businesses, uh, which is really cool. Um, I so love man. that. That's really, that's really interesting. And, um, you know, I think in areas like Africa, et cetera, like that, that sounds like a really inspiring mission. And um, yeah, I've, I've thought a lot about what mobile learning environments l might look like. Um, it's harder for me to imagine like a coding environment where you yeah. could do something purely mobile, but uh, definitely there's, there's different formats you could do for, um, for different, maybe like product management as an example, or mm. even des design kind of requires you to be at a computer, but definitely something I'm thinking about. That's really cool. Yeah. I'm going to interview the, the founder so I can send it to you guys and I will send it to you and, and send it to my audience uh, when I want to do that. But, awesome. Um, uh, yeah, well, thank you so much for on the show for coming on the show. And how can people find out more about you and, and what you're working on? Yeah, so I think the best way is always Twitter. Um, I'm at JMJ, and that's where I tend to share everything that's happening in my life, and and it's kind of my blog um, of sorts. That's really cool. Uh, well, thank you so much. It's been a huge pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into this episode. If you enjoyed it, please find us on iTunes by searching for Crazy Wisdom. Uh, you can also find us on Spotify, Overcast, Stitcher, all the major podcast platforms. Uh, and if you like these, these episodes, then please go ahead and give us a review. And just a little bit more about my release schedule. I'm going to try to get another four, uh, four to five episodes out this week. Uh, I've got about 45 in the lineup and trying to get them out there as soon as possible because I'm not slowing down in terms of how many I'm doing either. So uh, so I'm trying to increase my output and uh, hopefully that's not too prolific for you. But uh, yeah, so probably have about four or five episodes out this week and, and look forward to some more episodes throughout the week. Um, thanks, bye.